Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Always happy when I have a return engagement and we are getting Dr. Adam Gamwell back on the show. Adam and I had a great first round about a year ago and lots of stuff has gone on since the end of 2019. So there's plenty for us to talk about. In particular, thinking about anthropology, social sciences, how work is changing and how all of this relates to education. But before we get into any of that, Adam, welcome back to Trending in Education. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's, it's nice to be back. And I, I hear word that I got a magnet if I keep coming back again. So that's, that's true. Uh, that's <laughs> true. With your third appearance, you qualify for a refrigerator magnet. So you're well on your way. But, but last, time we, yeah, last time we talked, I think it was the anthropological imagination. Yeah. We wanted an excuse to talk about robots. We'd love to, if we can, bonus points for us, if we wind up talking about robots on today's show, but that wasn't necessarily the yeah. intent. Instead, I think we wanted to catch up with you a little bit on uh, what you've been up to over the past year. So I think folks hopefully remember, but you're still the host of uh, This Anthro Life. So that was really how we met as fellow podcasters about a year ago mm-hmm. at the Sound Education Conference up in Boston, which was great. But uh, you're still podcasting. You're still an anthropologist. Yeah. Can you catch us up a little bit on what you've been up to over the past year? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so still still podcasting with This Anthro Life. And it's, it's crazy. We are celebrating... It's the Royal We because it's, it's really yeah. me running it. But mm-hmm. the Royal We is celebrating seven years of, of doing that, which is awesome. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's nice to see that still going. And, and it's shifted a bit. And that's actually going to be a piece of our conversation of how the focus of the show has changed a little bit, um, mm-hmm. which I'll dive into in a second. Yeah. Elsewise, still an anthropologist too. And what, when we talked last time, I was working primarily for myself with Missing Link Studios, which is a company that I co-founded, where we did media production and design research work. And I've shifted a little bit, so I've still been doing that through a chunk of 2020, but as we know, there was a little thing called the pandemic, which yes. as being a self-employed person, as you know, too, can be fairly challenging for finding work and, and that sure. can go up and down and mm-hmm. had some ups and downs in that space, but like really enjoyed doing client work and, and doing design work and, and research. And I've recently kicked up working with a big data ethnography company mm-hmm. that for me as an anthropologist makes me really happy because the CEO is also an anthropologist and it's framed on anthropological thinking mm-hmm. and how we do that work. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's in the kind of consumer research and innovation. And so this like super weird, long back and forth career path of working for myself and working with other people has gotten me really thinking about also what does it mean to be prepared for work mm-hmm. and like the kind of training that you get and what that might mean. And how do you know when you've had enough experience and does school get you as far enough as job experience? Sometimes not. So part of that too is, is just that this Anthro Life itself as a podcast has shifted a little bit in terms of when we first started, it was picking a topic like beer or yeah. um, garbage and talking about that yeah. for 45 minutes in a round table. Yeah. And much more so now I talk to people doing good work, people like yourself in terms of that are doing things that are not necessarily social scientists, but it doesn't matter. The idea is like, how do we bring social science into these conversations around education, yeah. around neuroscience, around marketing, mm-hmm. um, to show both the value on both sides of how can, how can we all think and work together? Yeah. So it's been, an interesting, it's been an interesting year to say the least, Yeah. which is the most underwhelming statement of, <laughs> of 2020, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like the year went through phases where the beginning of the year was like the joke about the fortune cookie, may you live in interesting times. It was like, ha. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny maybe until February. Yeah. And then and then the intervening months it's become less less amusing. But but yeah, it's definitely a time to reflect and also to be flexible and uh adaptable. But maybe we could go at this in both directions. So on the the one side there's 
the benefit to uh, business hmm. and for organizations and folks in the workforce proper, the private sector, whatever uh, term of art you want to use to describe that, how they benefit from adopting a, a social science, anthropological, ethnographic understanding, like what aspects of, you've done, you've been in a, a media production and design role as well as an anthropological role. So like, how does that all blend together to benefit on the workforce side? And then I think maybe downstream, we can talk a little more about what are some of the implications for education based on how a lot of what you really need to be effective in work is the ability to do stuff. So I think that was what we wanted to talk about and like those two main themes, but maybe we could go first with your experience and some of the conversations you've had with folks about the benefit of social science or anthropology or ethnography might be a good place to start too. If you could explain a little more what ethnography is and why it's relevant, but, but just more broadly, why social science, what it brings to the table for folks in organizations trying to, trying to solve some of the problems these days. Yeah, yeah, totally. That, that's a great, that's a great question. And ethnography is a good example to think with in that, in that space, because it's probably like the most well-known method and output that anthropology does and makes its bread and butter on. And so ethnography is simply the, the study of a, a group of people. We may talk about it as a culture of people, or we could think about it as a microculture. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. the Americans, because that's obviously a lot of different kinds of people, but there's many microcultures. Also, uh, also an excellent, an excellent show that's uh, true. Spies, about spies. Yeah, yeah. So I, actually, that's all I do. I just watch the Americans all day. That's all I do. <laughs> but it's, again, the study of a group of people, usually done traditionally in academia. It's done over a longer period of time, six months to two years, maybe. And it can vary just depending on what kind of research you're doing. Usually you would live with people. And so that way you really get to know them as neighbors, as friends. And the idea is that you get behind, if they're going to say, oh, we think about X subject this way, you're like, sure. We think about, we'll just say the holidays this way and we want to celebrate this way. But then when you spend time with people, you realize that, yeah, all families, you might have a little bit of an argument or this person likes to make these cookies. That person likes to make those cookies. Yeah. I don't like to give gifts. I'd like to give experiences, like all these things yeah. that you may or may not say. That ethnography just gives you the time to spend to get to know essentially the meanings behind the things that people say. Is, yeah. Is what think about that. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that in the work I've done in design research and as an anthropologist, like you do interviews with people, like it's based on participant observation, which is watching people while they do their work. And this could be like hanging out with you in the office, yeah. seeing how your teammates and workmates organize themselves in a meeting. Uh, having an office. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Remember, remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. There's, there's a huge, as you can imagine, in 2020, this like large uh, smattering of emails and webinars and things about how to do remote ethnography. I bet. Uh, because we couldn't go anywhere anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. And lo and behold, we developed methods to do it online as well. And, you know, but so it's just premised around this idea of getting to know people on, on their terms. And so rather mm-hmm. than saying, I think you think this, more, let's just talk with Mike and see what Mike and his family do. And the value of this in a business context, flip it, if you will, in terms of if someone came in and told you, you will like this product and you want to buy this. And we, we think this is what exactly what you, you, you will want. If it matches and you feel good, but if it doesn't match, it doesn't feel so great. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's on one level provides a you can say a consumer-led perspective in this business thing or a client-led perspective yeah. where it's that, what is it that people actually care about or thinking mm-hmm. about or what's mm-hmm. valuable to them? Mm-hmm. Or what meanings do they ascribe something? They may tell you, I want this, but they may think something else. And yeah. we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but just one of the most common examples of this right now is that uh, there's obviously an election that's going to be coming up or will have already happened by the time the episode Wait. comes out, but around now. Wait, what? You know, 
You mean, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. That explains some of what was I saw on the television. Oh, yeah, there's a presidential election. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes. That right. was not Sesame Street. That was actually right. a, But there's one kind of thing about do people trust the polls or not? Like and they're saying who's in the lead, who's not in the lead. And but there's a commentary in there that we can't trust the polls because there's reluctant voters on either side. Mostly they're saying there's reluctant voters on the conservative side that don't want to say they would vote for right. Trump. Right. And that idea is really interesting for ethnography because then it's like, why wouldn't people want to tell you who they're going to vote for. So right. what are the meanings behind that? Mm -hmm. This could be things about shame or pride, or I don't need to tell you or whatever it is, my right. freedom not to tell you. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's like a way to think about how do we get at people's perspectives? And we don't just want to say, the polls say this, but then we have this kind of fear that we can't necessarily trust them. So right, right. A, a, a method like ethnography is going to help us get to what are people actually thinking and doing. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the term that keeps coming up this year and, and probably forever is empathy. And the more you can understand your users, your customers, your students, the people in your life, you're better off. And, and then it also reminds me of the, the notion of diversity and inclusion, being able to deal with people, deal with, see, look at me, <laughs> engage with people from different cultures and backgrounds. Anthropologists have been grappling with that since Margaret Mead, dating mm. back to some yeah. of the, the more famous initial uh, forays into anthropology as a field. It very much was about empathy and tolerance and seeking out difference. Those mm -hmm. themes also are, are quite relevant in this day and age. And I think many organizations are seeking those things out, but they want to do it in a somewhat professional way. So I think looking to anthropologists uh, to do this type of research, it also reminds me of the idea of qualitative research as opposed to quantitative too, where trying to understand with more depth, the a more narrative research as well. Does any of this resonate with you? Yeah, no, that, that all does. That all does and that, that's a great like, lineup of, of thinking. And so just running through some of those ideas, you know, the idea of empathy is, is yeah, incredibly important in terms of knowing what it feels like to walk in somebody else's shoes, mm -hmm. is the idea, like to feel with somebody. Yeah. And yeah, ethnography is so very much about that, especially if you're you know, living with people. But even if not, even if you're just doing this qualitative research of talking with people, interviewing them and, and getting to know them, mm -hmm. again, on their terms. And it's, it's difficult not to be empathetic. And this is even something that design thinking as a bigger, perhaps known process in business than anthropology, at least for now, until anthropology catches up, yeah. is premised very much on empathy by knowing who it is that you're going to design for and like what mm -hmm. problems they actually face. Yeah. And it's interesting because design anthropology, which is a, a field that I practice, actually takes that empathy and then and moves it even a bit further where it's we're going to design with the people. It comes from the Scandinavian tradition of participatory design. We're going to design mm -hmm. with the people that, that are going to benefit from the, the project Yeah. versus me just saying, hey, I'm going to make you this great new app. Check it out. Right. I hope you like it. Because I heard that you didn't like you know, how to search for podcasts. So I made you a different app kind of thing versus yeah. like, let's make it together. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's based on this idea of empathy, certainly. And then, and then when you actually make things, obviously, then they have a much longer and better chance of actually you know, providing a difference from some making a difference in someone's life and being adopted by them. Yeah. Yeah. This idea of diversity and inclusion and in, in, in celebrating diversity is actually quite important as well. And yeah, you do see this in workplaces a lot more. And my hope is that we're going to see more HR departments and more other organizational bodies turn to anthropology to think about these questions and what does it mean to basically, you know, provide and hold space for difference and to celebrate diversity mm -hmm. in an organization and one of the other pieces that's interesting about this too is actually providing room for lack of a better term for dissent, right? Mm -hmm. Not everybody has to think the same way. We don't all have to think like the CEO. Yeah. We all have to think like the C-suite. But in fact, there is space for multiple kinds of thinking. And what's interesting is actually some of the research that I've been doing with different groups throughout this year has found that 
almost unilaterally, leaders and organizations find that the biggest sources of innovation in their company come from their employees, the people they work with every day. Yeah, and yeah. it's like learning to listen to the folks that are part of the organizations. And mm -hmm. so that's just as one small piece of, yeah, we got to tune in and diversity at one level, that's diversity of thought and diversity of where ideas come from. But then also, yes, cultural diversity too, and figuring out how to mix those pieces in. We are, we're on Zoom a billion hours every day now. It's even easier to talk with people across the world, but it's more common that we're doing it. And you yeah. and I as world famous podcasters, that's all we do every day. Sure. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. also there is the idea in, in their own, you said a few times in their own terms or like yeah. trying to come at it from a place of, of respect for the culture. Cause that is another, I did take some anthropology courses. There is a history of not always being as respectful of the culture that is being studied. Yeah. And that is something that it feels like that awakening that anthropological awakening is probably a little bit ahead of the cultural awakening that is happening in some spots. Obviously, there are other aspects of our culture that are less about coming at it with that sense of respect. But any thoughts also on maybe the academic rigor and thinking about the qualitative research as an actual thing? As someone who has worked in the private sector in organizations, I do think the, the structure of well-designed qualitative research, structured interviews, other mm -hmm. methods that make sense, I imagine there's probably some appeal there because it's getting at the empathy thing, but then it's applying a little bit more of a rigorous process there. So can you talk a bit about qualitative research and academic rigor? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that is something that it depends on what organization you're talking with, but there, that can be a good or a bad thing. And depending on how, how, again, rigorous somebody is. And what we might think about when we say rigor in this case is if you're designing a study and you have interview questions you want to ask somebody, you're asking the same questions to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, you're letting them, the interviewees, know that you are doing, for example, like we have the same 10 questions or we're doing an open-ended interview where I have five questions, but we're going to let it steer based on what you say. Yeah. So letting them know how the process is going to work. On the other side, if you're doing analysis, you're using the same kinds of coding system. Like you want to like tag different ideas saying this idea is about happiness. This yep. idea is about confusion or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the, the sort of pre side or the planning side, it's making sure that you actually have a representative sample of whoever mm -hmm. it is that you're trying to study. You don't just mm -hmm. go grab five people off the street unless you want a totally random sample, but right, right. you have this idea of sampling who it is that you're talking to. Yeah. yeah and these are like all, all super important. And it's interesting because in academia in general, if you're doing research as a graduate student, usually a lot of schools, you have to get your project approved by the IRB or the yes. Institutional Review Board. Organizations, it doesn't seem to have that same kind of requirement. So it, it's interesting, it, like it's a little bit more on the researchers and also depends on the maturity of the organization. Yeah. Some of them have a similar kind of- Depends know, on whether they've been sued in the past, I think as well. <laughs> yeah, for a different yeah. reason, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so, so that is definitely part of the, the equation too. But I, I think it is incredibly important to do that. And it's, it's funny because qualitative research can feel like a struggle sometimes to keep a rigor because if you're doing open-ended interviews or you're observing people, yeah, especially to an outsider, it looks like you're not really sticking to anything. It's right, kind of like right. you're just watching people hang out in a store while they're <laughs> shopping. But it's there is ways of thinking about what it is that I'm observing. I, I'm taking notes on the number of people that do something, the frequency with which they are looking for a product, the yeah. number of times they ask for something, like where they're moving spatially. Mm -hmm. So you can get into fine-grained detail that like really maps out the kind of project you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's super, that, yeah. it's super interesting that the connection you were uh, mentioning as well to the, the big data side of this and the data mm -hmm. analysis side of this, where if you can start to get smart about how you can code this data and then run some analysis against it, that starts to get super relevant. Because I think one of the knocks on whether justified or not, one of the knocks on the social sciences 
anthropology among them is that it's not a hard science. It's not yeah. as data driven. It's not as quantitative. I do want to move to the education piece next, but can you talk a little bit about the the data side of anthropology? Because you mentioned that earlier, and I, I think that is sounds like that might be an interesting trend uh, to explore. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the, the the places for the future of anthropology to really land in new spaces. And so, right as you're right, that anthropology is traditionally a qualitative science. Right, we're doing you know observational research and interviews and work in that space. And so because of that, you tend to have small sample sizes and, you, and, and long durations of research, mm -hmm. which makes it very hard to get big samples. Yep. And then if like things like what big data is really good at is like looking at patterns over time. And anthropology can't do that very easily if you're like hanging out with one group of people for two years. Like right. you, you will see patterns, but they're micro patterns. They're not going to be societal level patterns. Yeah. And so when it, when it comes to what kind of tech we have now, again, we have things like natural language processing and yep. AI and machine learning and algorithms. And so we have a bunch of really cool new tech that we're seeing some organizations start to adopt. And so this is one of the organizations that I work with called Motivase, that they've essentially developed this anthropologist AI, that you're an AI anthropologist, they call it. And the idea being that you can collect certain kinds of data largely from how people are having conversations online. Mm -hmm. And because we have access to forums and news websites and comments that people leave on them and stuff, you can scrape that data, which just means collect it. Yep. And then you can code that a certain way. Again, coding it is, is matters. Like you're saying, what is it that we, we see this information related to? Mm -hmm. And then you can then start you know, quantifying those patterns, which again are things like how frequently somebody talks about something yep. or the number of times they talk about it, or even things like semantic distance, like how close and how often a word is mentioned next to some other word. Mm -hmm. Again, for a human, that's very hard to do, but when you have a computer, you can easily just see, yeah. you can put 10,000 sentences in there and it'll tell you the semantic distance between words, right. like how often this word is near that word. Mm -hmm. And so with that kind of stuff, you can start to quantify things like meaning. You can start to quantify these bigger patterns using hundreds of thousands of um, entries or 20,000 people, for example, Yeah. Uh, to get a, a information. So to me, that's been one of the most interesting parts, both of 2020 and working with, with motive bases to get a sense of what it is to essentially quantify anthropology, yeah. anthropological thinking. What's cool too, just about this specifically with motive base, I, mean, I can't speak to every company, is that the theoretical background of this work is actually based in anthropology and sociology. It's taking yeah. things like the idea of social capital, which is that we don't exchange money, but we exchange things like prestige and social sure. class with each other kind of yeah. thing. And so Refri refrigerator magnets. Yeah. Yeah. That, bam. See, there you go. Yeah. yeah. See, I'm, I'm yeah. already, I'm, I'm back to the magnets now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so it's really cool to see that it is the thing about quantifying a lot of big data anthropological stuff is that it of course requires anthropology to work with big data. It requires right. us to engage with social, with data scientists. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the big things. This, is actually, this will get us over to the education piece too. Yeah, yeah. And the contemplating, how do we actually build people that want to think about that? How do we train people to think beyond doing a long-term study in, like I did, for example, I, I lived in Peru for two years and worked with indigenous scientists and yep. agricultural uh, scientists also in government agents. And I had essentially like a Nokia phone from 1990. Yeah. <laughs> I was not doing big data. <laughs> yeah. Small data. Yeah. And, but the thing is, I had depth of study and doing fieldwork in Peru is a depth of study, but then mm -hmm. I can get a breadth of it if I do it with big data. The cool thing about this to think about is like we can start getting patterns of data when we, when we build algorithms and use things like natural language processing and machine learning to see patterns across yeah. different conversations. Mm -hmm. But you still, as of right now, which is good, you still need anthropologists to interpret that data. Yeah. So yeah. the training of being an anthropologist actually still matters a, a, a huge deal. Yeah. It's just the thing that you're looking at to interpret is 
on a computer. Yeah. It's a different looking data set than just talking to somebody, for example. But yeah. the, the practice of interpretation is fundamentally the same. And that's the training that we get as anthropologists. Mm-hmm. So it's nice. AI, this is one of the examples that AI and, and machine learning are not going to wipe out anthropology. Just changing one thing that we can look at. And actually they're amplifying the power of social sciences to do interpretation on like much larger swaths of people. You know? Yeah, at, at least until our robot overlords yeah. uh, take over, which again, refer Ding. to, our, refer to yeah. our previous previous episode. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's one reference by me, yep. so good job by me. But, but yeah, so we're also, I think the other angle, the educational angle, angle that we were talking about a bit while we were prepping is super interesting and relevant to this show in particular. We were talking about it in a number of different dimensions, but maybe just to give you the floor a little bit, how are you thinking about reflecting on what the purpose of education is and how some of your experience, whether it's work experience or teaching or managing research, you were reflecting on it a little bit when we were prepping. And I think it'd be great to hear you expound a bit uh, on some of your ideas. Yeah. First off, robots. Number two. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so I finished my graduate degree in 2018. Mm-hmm. And, but even 2017, in the, when I was writing the dissertation and moving to get out of being a student, I was teaching in a design program. And partially because most graduate students do some level of teaching, whether they, mostly because they want to, but then I've always been interested in education is always something that I've, I've cared deeply about. Yeah. In this case, I found that I was doing better work. And to me, what I felt was more useful work when I was teaching, what I call, I call ninja anthropology in a design program where I wasn't teaching anthropology 101. I was teaching design thinking and research, yep. uh, design discourse, teaching design students um, how to write and make arguments. And obviously I could bring the anthropological perspective into that. But so for me, what was important about that was that I could go teach Anth 101 and teach people about culture and that was fine, but I realized that's not the best place that I could do it because I I felt better in this kind of hybrid space where uh, you can show why anthropology is valuable to another field. In this case, Mm -hmm. it was design. Yep. And spinning off from that, that's around that time and doing podcasting work too as an anthropologist. If anybody's read ever an ethnography or Margaret Mead, for example, She's a, she's a good example of somebody that's actually fun to read, but a lot of anthropologists now are, are very difficult to read. They're very academic sounding, very dry. Yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot of a lot of social scientists are like that. And that was part of the reason I made this AnthroLife podcast is it was like, how do we make uh, social science into much more of a conversational mm-hmm. apparatus, right? How can we talk about this kind of work? Because it does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, just the words not getting out past the kind of stuff that we publish. And so these two fields helped me spin out and then think about when I you know, co-founded Missing Link Studios and it was, again, thinking in this design in this research space and media production and communication. How do we tell our stories better? This yeah. is really what this is premised on. Mm-hmm. And if I look back to what my training did as a graduate student, did it help me do any of this stuff? It, it propelled me to both spend more time with anthropology and get, become an expert in doing interpretation of human behavior and thinking about social theory and like, why are we doing what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And so this is a, a piece that's really been deeply on my mind, especially in 2020, as I've been through a lot of different client work and, and now I'm settling into working with motive-based, still podcasting. And so it's like, how do I help others think about this? Like, because mm-hmm. this is, I'm not the only one having this conversation by any means, and, but I know students want skills. They want to be able to get jobs. They're anxious about that. I talk to students every once in a while. I'm not teaching right now, but I still am in league with universities. I, I'm doing a, a, this kind of internship podcasting with Brandeis University this fall, which is super exciting actually where I have uh, a number of interns who are students and they get class credit and I get to train them in podcasting and media production work. Yeah. And so it's this really interesting kind of industry and academic partnership getting to do, to do work that I love again, working yeah. with podcasting and, the, and just basically seeing the passion working with them and what else they may want to do. Yeah. 
But it's interesting because it's this idea is born out of wanting to, you know, do some other kind of work besides just educational schoolwork. But then there, there is this actual anxiety that, that a lot of students feel of like, how do I, how am I going to get a job? Right. I, I got a grad degree and whatever. I've got a bachelor's degree. I have no work experience kind of yeah. thing. And, and yeah. Um, you know, so I'm not poo-pooing schools. Education is fundamentally important for us to be better right. citizens and better humans, I think. But right. there is this flip side idea of what is the point of education, right? Mm-hmm. Is it to get a job? And it's, it's funny because I don't believe it is. It's not right. just to get a job, right? Right. It, but we need to work. And I think there are ways to ease that transition. Yeah. And it also reminds me of the maker's mindset where I just interviewed a recent episode, Lauren Buckman from the Art Center College of Design in LA. And he, he was talking about knowing through making as mm. as a theme that is important and in essence even your top tier academics are making research papers like to be published is to make something but i think increasingly to find relevant work the types of things you make are more likely going to be media powered or data enabled or 21st century something. And and I think that's really an interesting place. It's also where we, we were chatting about this a little bit before we started, where the idea of building a portfolio, is it better to, to accrue credentials or is it better to be creating outputs that people can refer to? It sounds like you've been able to tap into both of those domains. Do you have any perspective on the benefit of uh, a maker's mindset and thinking about that as an educator where like you want to have your students demonstrate that they can actually produce outputs as part of the the educational process. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I, I I love that idea of of the maker's mindset, and that was actually one of the reasons that I was attracted to teaching in a design school mm-hmm. uh, when I did for a few years, just because, at least in my early naive opinion, it was like, oh, we're gonna we're like if we're doing design thinking and design research, and, and then all the projects we're gonna be working on are making things, right? Yeah. We're gonna make stuff, right. <laughs> And they were and they weren't, we find out. And this is, like, this is actually this is a very big learning moment for me, actually, in terms of design education, because I, I had an idea of what it was versus mm-hmm. anthropological education. Uh, and it's interesting because it's, it's different, but it's also not that different. The mindset of a designer is different than an anthropologist. And this is where I think there's some great potential for overlap in terms of uh, design is making and solving problems and anthropology is you know, studying the human condition. And then imagine putting those two together. That's right. why I love the idea of design anthropology. It's like we're making things that can help help the human condition in essence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they, they don't have to be like, we're not designing something crazy. It's just we're actually thinking about how do we help food delivery in, in impoverished areas better? Or how do mm-hmm. we make an app that is in more than one language so right. other people can use it? So it can be fairly simple things too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But so the idea of making something, it, it has a different kind of tangibility to it, I think. And, and again, when we're saying this, we, we might mean, again, it may be a digital tool that you're making. It might sure. be a podcast that you're making. It could be a physical object. I did teach for a semester in an engineering school and that was very interesting. Kicked my butt in its own way because it was just like engineering mindset is even much more further in, you know, down the road of making stuff yeah. than the design mindset is. Right, right. And because uh, there's math. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, the scariest word for anthropologists. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I think that like the idea of, of having this maker's mindset uh, is again, it was really attractive to me thinking about when I was teaching and like why you know, why I would want to teach in certain programs. But then mm-hmm. now that I'm a little bit on the other side, and even just that idea in terms of working with these uh, students as interns, 
When we first started out, I, I said to all of them that it's really important to me that you come away with this feeling like you've made some things that you can add to your resume. Yeah. You know, if you do a portfolio to your portfolio, but I want you to feel mm -hmm. like you have things you can leave this with and then point back and say, I made that. And whether that's a blog post or a podcast or mm -hmm. all these things, because I, I know what that feels like where it's um, okay. I'm getting out of school and I don't really have anything that I've made. Yeah. I've been doing actually a few webinars this summertime into fall with the American Anthropological Association or the AAA, not the car one. Yeah. And they should team up. It'd be like six, six A's. <laughs> they really understand your flat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, and so what's interesting about this is one of the, one of the pieces that we did, I did a series on portfolio versus resume versus CV or curriculum vita. Ah, and like cool. the people have probably heard of a resume and you probably heard of a CV too, but if not, a CV is, is just a longer document that lists all of your academic achievements. Mm -hmm. A resume is just like a one or two page experience or a career history document. Mm -hmm. And then a portfolio is usually one to three case studies of a project that you've worked on and that kind right. of the steps that you went through. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to have to break these things down. And, and so one thing I did is I had a CV, I have a resume, I have a portfolio. And just showing folks what these look like, it was interesting to both see people's minds be blown, not because my resume is great, because it's not, but just like to say, oh, that's how you translate yeah. this like 10 page CV into a one page resume when you have no job experience. And so one of the pieces that came with that, for example, was this idea of doing a skills-based audit of yourself. And so if you're saying, I've written papers, I've, give, I've given conference presentations before, I have worked on teams and class and stuff, but how, how do I make that into work sounding things? Yeah, yeah. And the idea is to think about it as a skills-based audit. This is my maker minding from, a, from essentially academic training into showing a work or an organization what you can do for them. And then taking and thinking about that, if you, so if you give them presentations, then you can think about you've done communication work, right. you've done public speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't say I translated complex ideas on your resume, but that's essentially what you're doing, right? Right. Um, if you worked on teams, if you've, done, if you've done a research project, which if you are a social scientist, you have, mm -hmm. um, even undergrads, then you can look at research design mm -hmm. as, a, as a skill. Interesting. Yep. And so it's just realizing that there are actionable insights you can take from the kind of work you do in school that are directly applicable to, to industry work. It's just about learning vocabulary a little bit yeah. differently. And I know this sounds a little different, but th that to me is what became a way, again, how do I make this work for people? Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the things is like, you can actually make the stuff that you've already done. It's just about translation a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, making something like making a portfolio and like case studies, it feels like even a, a few steps beyond that too. But it's one of the key things I find that people were looking for. And this, that's why I'm, I'm talking about CVs to resumes to portfolios is just like helping people realize that there are, you can step stone to it, right? It's yeah. like, it's not just, the hardest thing is to see a, a done portfolio and be like, how do I even get right. to Adding point A to point B, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are steps in that. So it's, I don't know, it's interesting to, to, to think of. I don't know if that, if that bounces back at you at all, but the idea yeah. of like making these make sense. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's also, for me, I've also found it difficult at times to package the work. If you're doing the work, you think the work is the work, yeah. but then to actually package it in a way that a future employer can understand its relevance, which is why also the idea of skill ma skills mapping the work is really interesting. That in and of itself is a skill to understand how do I translate this thing into something that would, would maybe appear on a job description or would resonate with a hiring manager, which does come full circle back to empathy too. I like try and understand that the hiring side of the equation is challenging. And as an anthropologist who's spending more time on that side with the yeah. organizations, you start to understand why there's a need for help. And in some ways, I'd, I'd say this is an argument for for engaging in the social sciences. So don't give up is another uh, takeaway here, because <laughs> yeah. I think 
social sciences sometimes get a get a bit of bit of a black eye, not always yeah. treated with the same level of of respect, which is interesting, particularly when it is frequently a place where you can learn about respect and learn about how to really engage with other humans in social endeavor. We're mm-hmm. coming up on time, Adam. I always love to hear. It's been about a year. It's been a somewhat yeah. eventful year for for many of us, whether we like it or not. Anything new and emerging? Any any hot trends? Any anything to share with with me and our listeners around what's new and emerging? Could also reinforce something we already talked about. But anything out there that's capturing your imagination that you want to make sure folks uh, hear about? Yeah, thanks again for having me. Again, yeah. it's been super fun as always, and and I can't wait for yeah, round three it, in that magazine. Right, right. Yeah. And also, if people want to hear hear more uh, from you about you, any recommendations, and then we'll get your uh, parting thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if people want to find me, you can find me at thisanthrolife.org is the podcast website, or you can go to gamwell.design. That's G-A-M-W-E-L.design or, or Twitter is, is Gamwell is, is also my Twitter name there. Yeah. I love talking about all these these subjects, but just focusing on, on both the idea of making and articulating anthropology and social sciences value for business is such an important piece. That 21st century is one of the hot trends is actually that organizations and industry are turning to anthropology more and more because we're facing working with global populations. We are working online. We have to shift the culture of work Mm -hmm. by not being in an office. Yes. And so it's, yes, I mean, I want to echo your point. Don't give up on the social sciences, but the other side is they need help. And so it's, we need people that want to be anthropologists or social scientists, but that also care about business. Yeah. And so one, one hot take or interesting thing that I'm seeing people talk about in, in departments focusing on is actually adding in, how do we help train people to think about business or design? So mm, one thing yeah. I can say is if you're a social science student or thinking about social sciences, take a class in business. Or if you're a business student, take a class in anthropology. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, if you're in social sciences or not, take a class in something else. And so in this yeah. case, I would say business, just to get the sense of what else it is that someone else, what other organization or field is talking about. Mm-hmm. It'll, take you, it'll take you much further. And you're, you're going to feel a lot more secure. It's just yeah. like to have a sense of, okay, I understand now when the hiring manager, what they're thinking about, what language they're using, yeah, yeah. get it a little bit. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. If you can internalize more of the diverse perspectives in some ways, you can, as an individual, bring some of the benefits of, of having those different perspectives in one person. So rather than being too narrow in your focus, even as you develop your specialization, be out, keep your eyes open, play with your head up, look across, yeah. use whatever, whatever kind of visual analogy makes sense to you. But but yeah, so fascinating stuff. Always a pleasure to, to have you on, Adam. Thank you again for joining. Yeah, and, thanks, Mike. Yeah, and for our listeners, thank you as always for listening. We want to have an anthropological, ethnographic understanding of you. So feel free to write a review, reach out to at Trending and Ed. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back again soon. Thanks as always for listening.